Music was in the DNA of the Boulanger sisters. Their father, Ernst, was a composer of comic operas and choral music, but it was his job as a vocal teacher that brought him into contact with Raisa Mishilskaya, a real Russian princess. The two fell in love and were married in 1877. The groom was 62, the bride, 21. They had been married for 10 years when their daughter Nadia was born. Five years later, Lily arrived. Ernst was then 77 years old. Apparently, Lily's musical aptitude was evident early when family friend Gabrielle Foray discovered the two-year-old had perfect pitch. That same year, Lily contracted bronchial pneumonia, which left her immune system severely compromised, causing long-term consequences. At the age of five, she accompanied her sister to the Paris Conservatoire, auditing classes on music theory and later studying organ. Following in her mother's footsteps, she liked to sing while continuing to play piano, violin, cello, and harp. Lily was close to her father, and his death when she was eight affected her deeply, so much so that many of her works deal with the themes of loss and grief. When Lily was 16, her mother pressed her to find an occupation. She worried that because of her ill health, she would never marry and thus have to be able to support herself. It was then Lily began composing and announced that one day, like her father, she intended to win the Prix de Rome. To that end, for the next three years, she intensified her study of harmony, counterpoint, and the art of fugue. One of her biographers has said, quote, Lily's physical dependence on others, especially her family, was often total, but she also enjoyed complete intellectual and artistic autonomy, end of quote. Rules for the prestigious Prix de Rome were daunting. The piece had to be written in a span of four weeks and needed to be at least 30 minutes long. The award was first given out in the 17th century. It permitted the winner to live in Rome for three to five years with all expenses paid. At the beginning, it honored only artists, but in the 19th century, it was awarded to a composer for the first time. Lily's first attempt came in 1912, but she collapsed from her illness while performing her composition. But the next year, at the tender age of 19, Lily presented her cantata Faust and Helene. The judges were impressed, and the prize was hers. She also snagged a contract with the music publisher. However, once again, illness forced her to return home, meaning she could not use all the allotted time. During World War I, she and her sister were involved in efforts to help wounded French soldiers and their families. During her last years, she worked on an opera, La Princesse Madeleine, but sadly, she died before its completion. Lily Boulanger was just 24 years old. Despite her short life, she produced some 50 works, many of them with a religious theme reflective of her strong faith. She apparently understood that a long life was not to be for her. Yet in such a short time, she exerted a powerful influence on French music, but also on her sister Nadia. The trajectory of Nadia's career was certainly impacted by the life and death of Lily. Nadia had tried twice to win the Prix de Rome, but the closest she came was second. She seemed to recognize that her sibling's gift for composition was something she did not possess, and when Lily died, she gave up composing altogether. 
and began to carve out a niche for herself in the music world that perhaps no one has ever rivaled. Instead of composing, she taught composition to others. People like Aaron Copland, Leonard Bernstein, Astor Piazzolla, Philip Glass, and John Elliott Gardner. But it wasn't just classicists who sought her expertise. In the 1950s, she taught Quincy Jones. A musicologist said of her, quote, while she gave them a rigorous grounding in academic music analysis, she also enabled each of them to find their own distinct language, end of quote. Her teaching mostly took place in her apartment in Paris, but at various times she gave classes at Juilliard, the Yehudi Menuhin School, and other world-class institutions. While she may have given up composing, she continued to perform, playing the organ for Copeland's composition for orchestra and organ. She was also the first woman to conduct major orchestras like the Boston Symphony, the New York Philharmonic, and the BBC Symphony. Asked about the significance of this, Nadia replied, I've been a woman for a little over 50 years and have gotten over my initial astonishment. As for conducting an orchestra, that's a job where I don't think sex has much of an impact. Alas, I think for years it probably did. Nadia died in Paris at the age of 94, and while her sister influenced French music, Nadia's influence was worldwide. I would like to close with this statement by Nadia, which I think relates to this times we are living in. She wrote, nothing is better than music when it takes us out of time. It has done more for us than we have the right to hope for. It has broadened the limits of our sorrowful life. It has lit up the sweetness of our hours of happiness by effacing the pettiness that diminishes us, bringing us back pure and new to what was, what will be, what music has created for us. Thank you for listening. Music was in the DNA of the Boulanger sisters. Their father, Ernst, was a composer of comic operas and choral music, but it was his job as a vocal teacher that brought him into contact with Raisa Mishelskaya, a real Russian princess. The two fell in love and were married in 1877. The groom was 62, the bride, 21. They had been married for 10 years when their daughter Nadia was born. Five years later, Lily arrived. Ernst was then 77 years old. Apparently, Lily's musical aptitude was evident early when family friend Gabrielle Foray discovered the two-year-old had perfect pitch. That same year, Lily contracted bronchial pneumonia, which left her immune system severely compromised, causing long-term consequences. At the age of five, she accompanied her sister to the Paris Conservatoire, auditing classes on music theory and later studying organ. Following in her mother's footsteps, she liked to sing while continuing to play piano, violin, cello, and harp. Lily was close to her father, and his death when she was eight affected her deeply, so much so that many of her works deal with the themes of loss and grief. When Lily was 16, her mother pressed her to find an occupation. She worried that because of her ill health, she would never marry and thus have to be able to support herself. 
It was then Lily began composing and announced that one day, like her father, she intended to win the Prix de Rome. To that end, for the next three years, she intensified her study of harmony, counterpoint, and the art of fugue. One of her biographers has said, quote, Lily's physical dependence on others, especially her family, was often total, but she also enjoyed complete intellectual and artistic autonomy, end of quote. Rules for the prestigious Prix de Rome were daunting. The piece had to be written in a span of four weeks and needed to be at least 30 minutes long. The award was first given out in the 17th century. It permitted the winner to live in Rome for three to five years with all expenses paid. At the beginning, it honored only artists, but in the 19th century, it was awarded to a composer for the first time. Lily's first attempt came in 1912, but she collapsed from her illness while performing her composition. But the next year, at the tender age of 19, Lily presented her cantata Faust and Helene. The judges were impressed, and the prize was hers. She also snagged a contract with the music publisher. However, once again, illness forced her to return home, meaning she could not use all the allotted time. During World War I, she and her sister were involved in efforts to help wounded French soldiers and their families. During her last years, she worked on an opera, La Princesse Madeleine, but sadly, she died before its completion. Lily Boulanger was just 24 years old. Despite her short life, she produced some 50 works, many of them with a religious theme reflective of her strong faith. She apparently understood that a long life was not to be for her. Yet in such a short time, she exerted a powerful influence on French music, but also on her sister Nadia. The trajectory of Nadia's career was certainly impacted by the life and death of Lily. Nadia had tried twice to win the Prix de Rome, but the closest she came was second. She seemed to recognize that her sibling's gift for composition was something she did not possess, and when Lily died, she gave up composing altogether and began to carve out a niche for herself in the music world that perhaps no one has ever rivaled. Instead of composing, she taught composition to others. People like Aaron Copland, Leonard Bernstein, Astor Piazzolla, Philip Glass, and John Elliott Gardner. But it wasn't just classicists who sought her expertise. In the 1950s, she taught Quincy Jones. A musicologist said of her, quote, while she gave them a rigorous grounding in academic music analysis, she also enabled each of them to find their own distinct language, end of quote. Her teaching mostly took place in her apartment in Paris, but at various times she gave classes at Juilliard, the Yehudi Menuhin School, and other world-class institutions. While she may have given up composing, she continued to perform, playing the organ for Copeland's composition for orchestra and organ. She was also the first woman to conduct major orchestras like the Boston Symphony, the New York Philharmonic, and the BBC Symphony. Asked about the significance of this, Nadia replied, I've been a woman for a little over 50 years and have gotten over my initial astonishment. As for conducting an orchestra, that's a job where I don't think sex has much of an impact. Alas, I think for years it probably did. Nadia died in Paris at the age of 94. 
and while her sister influenced French music, Nadia's influence was worldwide. I would like to close with this statement by Nadia, which I think relates to this times we are living in. She wrote, nothing is better than music when it takes us out of time. It has done more for us than we have the right to hope for. It has broadened the limits of our sorrowful life. It has lit up the sweetness of our hours of happiness by effacing the pettiness that diminishes us, bringing us back pure and new to what was, what will be, what music has created for us. Thank you for listening. Welcome to my second podcast. Originally, I was not going to record this until next week, but after the historic events that took place in Washington yesterday afternoon, I thought it entirely appropriate to record this today. Sometimes, while researching one topic, you come across something else that commands your attention. And so it was that I learned about the American composer Florence Beatrice Price. She was born in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1887, one of three children in a mixed-race family living in a mixed-race neighborhood. Her father, James H. Smith, was Little Rock's only black dentist. Her mother, before her marriage, had taught music in Indianapolis, so it was natural that when the child showed an aptitude for the subject, her mother became her first teacher. This precocious girl gave her first public performance at the age of four and had her first composition published when she was just 11 years old. She was no slouch in the academic department either, graduating high school at age 14 and giving the valedictorian speech to her class. Despite her skill in music, initially Florence expressed a desire to become a doctor, but when her applications were denied, either because of her heritage or her sex or both, thankfully, she returned to music. She enrolled in the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston with the double major of piano and organ. Before she left home, her mother offered her advice. To avoid discrimination, she should tell people she was Mexican. So Florence listed her hometown as Pueblo, Mexico. While attending school, she wrote her first symphony, plus a trio for strings. She completed her studies in 1906 and returned home where she taught music. But in 1910, she moved to Atlanta to become the head of the music department at a black college. It was there she met the lawyer Thomas Price and the couple moved back to Little Rock where her husband set up practice. In the early 1900s, however, Little Rock experienced a number of racially motivated incidents, including a lynching in 1927, which took place not far from the family home. So the Prices decided a move would be prudent and headed to Chicago. Florence flourished in the newfound freedom in the Windy City. She returned to school and studied composition, orchestration, and organ with two of the country's leading music educators. She published four pieces for piano, but her interests weren't confined to music alone. She enrolled in the University of Chicago studying languages and liberal arts. But while things were progressing in her musical life, 
such was not the case on the marital or financial front. In 1931, she filed for divorce, citing abusive behavior. Left with little money and two daughters to support, she undertook a variety of jobs, including playing the organ for silent films, something which requires excellent improvisational skills. She also wrote songs for the radio using a pseudonym. With money in short supply, she was forced to live with friends, but this actually proved serendipitous as it brought her into contact with the poet Langston Hughes and Marian Anderson, both well-established in the arts and both who aided Price's future success. In 1932, she won first prize in the Wanamaker Foundation Awards for her symphony in E minor and received the third prize for her piano sonata. On June 15, 1933, the Chicago Symphony premiered her work, which made Florence's the first composition by an African-American woman to be played by a major orchestra. Her works are many and varied. She wrote art songs, organ anthems, three piano concertos, a violin concerto, and many spiritual arrangements. A lot of her pieces make use of melodies and rhythms related to her heritage. Two of her spiritual arrangements were dedicated to Marian Anderson, who included them in a number of her performances, including one very famous one. Marian Anderson was slated to sing at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C., but she was denied because of her color. Enter Eleanor Roosevelt, who obtained a permit and the concert took place on the steps. Florence Price died in 1953 at the age of 66, but there is an incredible addendum to her story. In 2009, a young couple bought an abandoned house on the outskirts of St. Anne, Illinois. While doing renovations, they came across a box containing a collection of papers and manuscripts belonging to one Florence Price, who had once owned the home. Included in this find were her two violin concertos and her fourth symphony. Luckily, the couple understood the importance of this find and saw that it made its way to the right place. Alex Ross wrote in the New Yorker in 2018, not only did Price fail to enter the canon, a large quantity of her music came perilously close to obliteration. That rundown house is a potent symbol of how a country can forget its cultural history, end of quote. Thus, a renewed interest in this remarkable woman was born. Her symphony number no. one in E minor was performed at the Royal Albert Hall. On both YouTube and Spotify, you can hear many of her, her works, including one entitled Ethiopia's Shadow on America. Her association with Langston Hughes produced the song Hold Fast to Your Dreams, which I think is a fitting epitaph for the life of one Florence Beatrice Price. Welcome to my second podcast. Originally, I was not going to record this until next week, but after the historic events that took place in Washington yesterday afternoon, I thought it entirely appropriate to record this today. Sometimes, while researching one topic, you come across something else that commands your attention. 
And so it was that I learned about the American composer, Florence Beatrice Price. She was born in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1887, one of three children in a mixed race family living in a mixed race neighborhood. Her father, James H. Smith, was Little Rock's only black dentist. Her mother, before her marriage, had taught music in Indianapolis, so it was natural that when the child showed an aptitude for the subject, her mother became her first teacher. This precocious girl gave her first public performance at the age of four and had her first composition published when she was just 11 years old. She was no slouch in the academic department either, graduating high school at age 14 and giving the valedictorian speech to her class. Despite her skill in music, initially, Florence expressed a desire to become a doctor, but when her applications were denied, either because of her heritage or her sex or both, thankfully, she returned to music. She enrolled in the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston with the double major of piano and organ. Before she left home, her mother offered her advice. To avoid discrimination, she should tell people she was Mexican. So Florence listed her hometown as Pueblo, Mexico. While attending school, she wrote her first symphony, plus a trio for strings. She completed her studies in 1906 and returned home where she taught music. But in 1910, she moved to Atlanta to become the head of the music department at a black college. It was there she met the lawyer Thomas Price and the couple moved back to Little Rock where her husband set up practice. In the early 1900s, however, Little Rock experienced a number of racially motivated incidents, including a lynching in 1927, which took place not far from the family home. So the Prices decided a move would be prudent and headed to Chicago. Florence flourished in the newfound freedom in the Windy City. She returned to school and studied composition, orchestration, and organ with two of the country's leading music educators. She published four pieces for piano, but her interests weren't confined to music alone. She enrolled in the University of Chicago studying languages and liberal arts. But while things were progressing in her musical life, such was not the case on the marital or financial front. In 1931, she filed for divorce, citing abusive behavior. Left with little money and two daughters to support, she undertook a variety of jobs, including playing the organ for silent films, something which requires excellent improvisational skills. She also wrote songs for the radio using a pseudonym. With money in short supply, she was forced to live with friends, but this actually proved serendipitous as it brought her into contact with the poet Langston Hughes and Marian Anderson, both well-established in the arts and both who aided Price's future success. In 1932, she won first prize in the Wanamaker Foundation Awards for her symphony in E minor and received the third prize for her piano sonata. On June 15, 1933, the Chicago Symphony premiered her work, which made Florence's the first composition by an African-American woman to be played by a major orchestra. Her works are many and varied. 
She wrote art songs, organ anthems, three piano concertos, a violin concerto, and many spiritual arrangements. A lot of her pieces make use of melodies and rhythms related to her heritage. Two of her spiritual arrangements were dedicated to Marian Anderson, who included them in a number of her performances, including one very famous one. Marian Anderson was slated to sing at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C., but she was denied because of her color. Enter Eleanor Roosevelt, who obtained a permit and the concert took place on the steps. Florence Price died in 1953 at the age of 66, but there is an incredible addendum to her story. In 2009, a young couple bought an abandoned house on the outskirts of St. Anne, Illinois. While doing renovations, they came across a box containing a collection of papers and manuscripts belonging to one Florence Price, who had once owned the home. Included in this find were her two violin concertos and her fourth symphony. Luckily, the couple understood the importance of this find and saw that it made its way to the right place. Alex Ross wrote in The New Yorker in 2018, Not only did Price fail to enter the canon, a large quantity of her music came perilously close to obliteration. That rundown house is a potent symbol of how a country can forget its cultural history, end of quote. Thus, a renewed interest in this remarkable woman was born. Her symphony number no. one in E minor was performed at the Royal Albert Hall. On both YouTube and Spotify, you can hear many of her, her works, including one entitled Ethiopia's Shadow on America. Her association with Langston Hughes produced the song Hold Fast to Your Dreams, which I think is a fitting epitaph for the life of one Florence Beatrice Price. <laughs>